Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, Salem, Virginia's Flat Five studio got its first big break when the Dave Matthews Band was searching for a quiet place to record its first album. They tried to record at a studio in Charlottesville, and the recording was going okay, but there's such a buzz going on that they couldn't get anything done. They were just crowds of people were showing up. And Apache Woods in the New River Gorge National Park and Preserve was recently inducted into the Old Growth Forest Network. The important part is having this forest that can act as a reference for us to be able to better manage our public lands. And a West Virginia nonprofit is making solar-powered light kits for families in war-torn Ukraine. And then you have to like solder each little piece and then you have to hook your wires onto them to make the lights work. I enjoy doing it because I know it's going somewhere to help someone. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by the West Virginia Higher Education Policy Commission, presenting Appalachian Care Chronicles, a podcast sharing the stories of folks working in every corner of West Virginia's health sector, now available wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, building on West Virginia's proud history of powering the nation by bringing solar power to the coal fields. More at solarholler.com. Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today we start with the folkway story about music from the city of Salem, Virginia, just down the mountain from me. Tom Olmson has been around music his whole life. His uncle played trumpet in jazz bands and got him his first tape recorder when he was just a kid. We got just a basic uh, quarter-inch reel-to-reel recorder with with a cheap microphone. When Olmson went to college, he started playing music himself, mostly bluegrass. Ended up picking up the mandolin because I had a roommate who uh, had a... Just an old mandolin he kept in the corner, and he never played it. Around the same time, he got into college radio. That gave him a chance to practice his recording skills with bluegrass musicians. Those people were demanding that somebody mix them according to the protocol of bluegrass and old-time music, and I just happened to be in that world. That led to bluegrass musicians making regular visits to Olmson's college radio station, where they'd play live on air. We started getting some name groups coming in the studio and doing just live uh, two-track recordings. We were getting bands like the Seldom Scene, you know, got to meet Bill Monroe. Uh, he allowed us to record one of his sets at a local festival, and Ralph Stanley got to know him fairly well. Olmson eventually opened his own recording studio, first in his house, and then in a space in downtown Salem, Virginia. catered to local bands and to bluegrass musicians who knew Olmson would record them properly. Then one day, Olmson got a call from the owner of a Roanoke-based sound and event company. It turned out the Charlottesville promoter was looking for a quiet, out-of-the-way place for a band to record an album. But there was a catch. Olmson had to keep it a secret. They tried to record at a studio in Charlottesville, and the recording was going okay, but there was such a buzz going on that they couldn't get anything done. They were just, crowds of people were showing up because it was a local sensation. So it was kind of this undercover thing for six or eight months. And that's how the Dave Matthews Band ended up at Flat Five. They recorded between 150 and 200 hours that would become part of their debut album, Remember Two Things. Remember Two Things was released in the fall of 1993. Soon after, Dave Matthews' band exploded in popularity, becoming one of the defining acts of the 90s. And that, in turn, made Flat Five a hot destination for bands hoping to make a splash. I was swamped with regional and local bands. I was working six and seven days a week, but uh, you know, I felt like I had to do what I could do with it while the demand was there. Along the way, 
Flat Five became one of Western Virginia's premier recording studios. Olmson just kept rolling with it until a few years ago when he started to think about retiring. Last year I turned 68 and I'm thinking, I don't know if I want to be here at 75. So Olmson made plans to pass the studio to a new owner, but not one who'd do things exactly the way he had. Instead, he zeroed in on one of his employees, a part-time engineer named Byron Mack. Like Olmson, Mack came from a musical family. I am the nephew of the jazz singer Jane Powell. Um, my grandfather is the one that got her into music. His name was Eddie Powell. Um, I'm third-generation musician for my family. But while Olmson got into bluegrass, Mac was all about rap and hip-hop. His Aunt Jane encouraged him to pursue it. As a 17-year-old, I was writing rhymes, and she found my rhyme book and had a bunch of profanity-laced stuff in it. Just, you know, young kid writing crazy stuff. But she was like, hey, if you clean this up, I'll let you come out and, and rap with my band. And that's where everything started. Jane Powell did more than give her nephew a chance to perform. It got to a point where it's like, man, we need, like, our own beats. And we couldn't get anybody to, like, you know, hook us up with any beats or anything. And so my Aunt Jane bought me my first beat machine for my 18th birthday. Mac was still living at home with his mom, but he was already starting to produce music. Like Olmson, he started with a makeshift studio in his house. To tell you how small things were, like, I had, <laughs> I slept on a mattress, and I would, like, literally take that mattress out of the walk-in closet so the artist could have room to go in and record their song. And then when they get done, I'd slide the mattress back in the closet <laughs> the room was so small. Mac's hustle and initiative eventually put him on Olmson's radar. In 2005, Mac went to work at Flat Five. Olmson says it was a good fit from the start, and not just on the technical end. Very good handling clients, and uh, you know, smooth over ruffled feathers. <laughs> Mac says Olmson started talking to him about retirement in 2018. It took another four years to close the deal. But finally, in 2022, Mac became Flat Five's new owner. He's expanded it to incorporate more of his work in hip-hop and R&B. Of course, being a hip-hop artist, um, I've been able to bring in some more hip-hop elements that didn't exist before. I still do graphic design, website design. Uh, we really try to make it a one-stop shop for an artist so they don't have to go anywhere else. He's continued to work with Flat Five's old clients. But he's brought in new artists, too, especially hip-hop artists. Olmson told me he thinks that's the studio's future. That's not to say it's all been easy going, even with Flat Five's long history. There's still you know, a few people around that have come here for years, but it's still a new business. You know, I'm new. There's, there's new elements to it. But then again, Byron Mack's been working as a music producer for decades at this point. Just like Tom Olmson. He started at home before moving up to Flat Five. He wants to keep building and turn the studio into a destination for musicians across the East Coast. My long-term goal for Flat Five is to be that go-to spot when you had to travel to Southwest Virginia. And in doing so, Byron Mack is keeping Tom Olmson's vision and the craft of music production alive and thriving. I'm the best of the beasts here. I'm working, keep requesting the feature. They call me king of the mountain. I'm investing in my region. Keep my nest. That story is part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To see photos from Flat Five Studio or to hear other Folkways stories, visit our website, wvpublic.org. If you ever want some perspective on your place in the world, go visit one of Appalachia's old growth forests. They've become rarer with logging and industrial expansion but they still carry a lot of power. Trees tower overhead, and everything just feels deeper and, well, ancient. Old growth forests play an important ecological role, too. They help protect against erosion and can be home to rare plant and animal species, including some with medicinal value. 
The nonprofit Old Growth Forest Network is dedicated to protecting these old growth forests. Recently, the Burnwood Trail at the New River Gorge National Park and Preserve was brought into the group's network. WVPB's Brianna Heaney has the story. Less than 1% of the forests in West Virginia are old growth forests. The majority of the state has been timbered due to large scale commercial logging. But nestled in the New River Gorge, there's a patch of forest along the Burnwood Trail that is old, hundreds of years old. And the trees there tell us a lot about how things used to be. What the weather was like, precipitation, what the soil composition was, what kind of animals were living and dying in that area, and even how indigenous communities modified the lands around them. Old growth forests are like living museums. That's Chance Rasso. He's a park ranger and a dendrochronologist, or someone who specializes in dating events, environmental change, and archaeological artifacts by using the characteristic patterns of annual growth rings in timber and tree trunks. He says that old growth forests are different from the forests that most of us are used to hiking in. That's because most of the U.S. forests have been timbered at some point. But these trees, some older than the United States, it's history. It's, 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 a, it's history that's alive, essentially. And Rasso says if you pay attention, you will notice differences in the old growth forest that set them apart from a previously timbered forest. You'll see larger trees that are just higher up into the canopy. They usually have a kind of twisted trunk to them. They'll have just a few branches at the very top, top of the tree. Those branches are really twisted and curled and gnarly. There's oftentimes a lot of shade that happens in these forests because the trees are so large. But whenever sunlight does come through, it's just piercing through those leaves like that, and it just gives a beautiful appearance. Doug Manning is a park ranger and biologist at the National Park and says that while the old forests tell us a lot about the past, it also clues us in about things we could do for a better future for our parks. It's really amazing to be able to touch something that we know started growing back in the 1600s, but it's really the the important part from my perspective is having this forest that can act as a reference for us to be able to better manage our public lands. Manning says the landscape around these trees and this forest have changed a lot since these trees were saplings. New and invasive plants and animals are on the landscape now, and other species have gone extinct. We have a lot of different pressures facing our forests. And Manning says these old forests that have stood the test of time are really good at handling some of those pressures. Those ecosystems tend to be better adapted to preventing certain things like flooding downstream. Forests do a really good job of absorbing water uh, when we do have high precipitation events and preventing soil erosion and other things that are can be detrimental to our waterways. Brian Kane works with the Old Growth Forest Network and worked with Rasso and Manning to get this patch of forest inducted to the network. He says not only do these trees help prevent catastrophic weather events like flooding and landslides, the list goes on. They also are habitat for rare and endangered species, and they really do enhance communities by the opportunities they offer people to walk through them, to enjoy the natural beauty, and and for the hard work they're doing regarding the environment. And when it comes to using these ecosystems to support positive change? We really believe that they are significant contributors to combating climate change. Once a forest is part of the Old Growth Forest Network, it is protected from being timbered. The organization is built on volunteers or park rangers who nominate parks to be protected. Kane says in many states, there are no protections to removing old growth trees from public lands. And about half of all old growth forests have very little or no protections and can still be cut down. When people begin to realize what a forest has endured to grow to this point and how they're, they're bellwethers of time and they tell us such great stories about the past, they would really think differently about it. The Biden administration has recently passed an executive order protecting old growth forest. And while the Old Growth Forest Network is working to protect existing old growth forests, the national park rangers like Manning are working to help facilitate new old growth forests. That's one of the really amazing things about our public lands, especially in the national parks, is that we have 
forests that are on a trajectory to, to be that. Maybe not in my lifetime, but people are going to get to see 350-plus-year-old trees in, in due time. The new designated old growth forest and the Burnwood Trail that loops through it is across Highway 19 from the ranger station at the Bridge Park. To find out more about old growth forest around you or how to volunteer with the Old Growth Forest Network, visit our website at wvpublic.org. With West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. Swainson's Warbler is an elusive songbird that primarily makes its home in the southern U.S. It can sometimes be found in parts of southern and central Appalachia. But the bird's breeding territory seems to be changing. The Allegheny Front's Kara Holsapel has more. The discovery started when Nick Leatis, executive director of Bird Lab, was hiking with a group in the forest at Bear Run Nature Reserve in the Laurel Highlands last summer. Folks had stopped to take in some of the beautiful views and I was hearing Louisiana water thrushes singing. And then I heard something that wasn't a Louisiana water thrush. It was a Swainson's warbler, which isn't known to breed in Pennsylvania. David Yaney is an avian ecologist in the Pennsylvania Natural Heritage Program at the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy, which owns the reserve. Swainson's warbler has a mnemonic, siu, 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 sisterville. But there's always that sisterville part, which kind of like cuts it off which changes the song from what you'd expect for uh, a Louisiana water thrush. Leatus made a recording of the Warbler's song and texted Yaney when he got back to cell service. And that's how their project began. That summer, they captured and banded four male Swainson's Warblers, two at Bear Run and one each in Indiana and Blair counties. The special metal ID bands around the bird's legs have a unique number, and a color band makes it possible to identify individual birds by sight. Yaney says the small brown birds with yellow underbellies have only been documented about 60 times since the species was first recorded in Pennsylvania in 1975. The nearest breeding population is in the mountains of West Virginia. A lot of times these migratory songbirds, they overshoot their destinations a little bit. They go a little bit farther than they might normally need to go or, or usually do. Leatus says then the migrants will double back to breed in a more common southern location. But these birds hung around through the summer. It's just sort of extraordinary that such a rare bird is occurring with this frequency at the Bear Run Nature Reserve. So it just really shows how good the habitat is there. Swainson's warblers thrive in the dense understory of mountain laurel and rhododendron, using their sword-like bills to find insects in the leaf litter on the forest floor. They're well camouflaged and hard to spot. This May, Leatus and Yaney were tipped off that a Swainson's warbler was heard singing at Bear Run. Again, they banded a male. Then, on July 12th... We spotted the banded male Swainson's warbler we captured in May, together with a female and a juvenile. Yaney says as often happens, they disappeared into the woods. But a couple of days later, they returned and captured the juvenile, which had hatched this year, the first proof the species has successfully bred in Pennsylvania. But why now? Swainson's warbler is a species that has been predicted to lose about a quarter of its current range under future climate scenarios, but it's also predicted to gain about 60 plus percent of new range. Yaney says it could be like the yellow-throated warbler and red-bellied woodpecker, which have expanded their ranges northward. I asked Yaney about the significance of the finding for him. So this is definitely a career highlight. Leatus says it's not every day that a state gets a new breeding bird. This like just underscores the need to conserve habitat and to continue looking for birds and studying birds and encouraging folks to make a plan to like make their yards bird friendly. Like planting native trees and shrubs in your yard. Leatus and Yaney will continue to study the Swainson's warbler and share feather samples with researchers looking for genetic information to study migration and breeding patterns. I'm Carol Holsapple. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on environmental news in the region. Coming up, people at a West Virginia nonprofit are making solar-powered lights for families in Ukraine. You know, one of the things that I think we've landed on is light brings hope and hope keeps people alive. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu. Russia's war with Ukraine has dragged on for more than a year and a half now. Americans are still following the conflict, but for many people, the war has faded into the background. Not so for the head of a West Virginia nonprofit who wanted to do something for Ukrainian families under constant threat of bombardment. New Vision Renewable Energy in Philippi produces handheld ray of life solar kits. The kits use solar power to generate light and charge a cell phone. Assistant News Director Caroline McGregor visited New Vision Renewable Energy to see how the units are made and how they're building a connection between Appalachia and Ukraine. New Vision Renewable Energy started out as a Christian community development organization, providing job training for young adults and at-risk youth. Located within the rugged Chestnut Ridge community of Philippi, their headquarters is known as the Epicenter, Created with sustainability in mind, over the years, New Vision evolved into an international organization helping people living without electricity. Co-founded by John Prusha, who was born in the former Czechoslovakia, the nonprofit promotes solar and renewable energy. Since 2011, it has sent its ray-of-life portable solar units into the developing world. Prusha's friendship with president and CEO of New Vision, Rustin Seaman, extends way back. The two met in Philippi, where Seaman serves a dual role as pastor of the People's Chapel Church. Shortly before Prusha's death earlier this year, he turned his attention to Ukraine, where rockets and missile strikes rain down daily, destroying the electric grid. The barrage has left millions of displaced families to survive in basements without power, light or heat. Ukraine was an immediate connection for Prusha, whose family had suffered under the onslaught of Russian aggression during the Prague Spring of 1968. He became a refugee and came to America, and he lived in Philippi. His whole journey was, was connected to the Russians and their overthrowing of his own country. An electrical engineer by profession, early on, Prusha mastered the art of making do with little. His dad was a Baptist pastor. His dad got thrown in prison. And as a boy, he became desperately poor, but he also, he would take broken things and fix it. It was this energy independence that guided his design of the Ray of Life solar unit, a four-pound self-contained kit equipped with a phone charger. The John and Kathy Prusha Science Technology Center was funded by the People's Chapel Church and is where the first solar unit was built. So... This is our multi-purpose center where we have a lot of our operations. We make about 40% of all of our electricity. Inside, light components and Ukrainian flag stickers line a long wooden workbench waiting to be assembled. So we're entering in. This is a brand new workshop that we have actually built for this particular product, and it'll be dedicated to John and Kathy Prusha. They're the renewable scientists that have helped us. This is Bradley Howderschild. He's our crew chief. Hi, Bradley. These are our members. Hello. This is Jonathan. Hello. You guys can Hi, introduce Jonathan. yourselves. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. I'm Shelby. Nice to meet you. Lauren. Hello. Hi, Chuck. Chuck. About midway through the workshop, we stop as Seaman points up to a picture on the wall, nostalgia written on his face as he speaks of his former friend and mentor. So this is John Prusia. So he's the person that kind of gave us yes. our initial training. So these four lights that we're going to make today will go on the next trip to the Ukraine and each one of our staff people will be able to assign something that they help learn how to make. The Ray of Life unit has four basic components, a solar panel, the lithium-ion batteries, three LED light strips and the housing that encases the units. When plugged into the batteries, the solar panels can last up to 10 years. I think the Ukraine is similar to West Virginia. We're not the best solar state in the world, but we designed our light to where it would have a minimum of five hours of light every night. If it's a cloudy week, you become a little more conservative about how much light you use every day. Chuck Coleman is an electronics specialist who oversees the assembly of the solar units. We've made some changes, but the original design was done by John and we want to carry on his work. Through extensive research and testing, Coleman, who teaches adult and after-school classes, was able to extend the life of the rechargeable batteries. 
and we're using a lithium ion battery. It's an 18650 battery, and it's an extremely good battery in the aspect that it holds energy for a long period of time. And that energy could last up to 10 hours. During their assembly, the batteries are incorporated into the solar unit as part of a job training program that provides income to local residents like 55-year-old Rita Dalton. Dalton has a special knack for soldering the lights, which requires good dexterity. The soldering part on the lights, you have to cut them so long, like the ends, and then you have a soldering kit thing, and then you have to like solder each little piece, and then you have to hook your wires onto them to make the lights work. I enjoy doing it because I know it's going somewhere to help someone. As she works, Dalton's thoughts are with the people of Ukraine. She knows firsthand what it's like to live without power. Before I learned how to do this here, I lived like probably three years with my children without electricity. And I would have loved to have one of them back then. So when I'm making one of these lights, I think about that and the people that's in the war, you know, and hiding and what it means just to be able to see. The solar units are constructed with the harsh living conditions of Ukraine in mind. Each one is thoroughly inspected to ensure that it holds up. We know when it goes to the war front, if it falls apart, nobody's going to benefit. So we work extra hard to make sure that we have a quality product to send. Before COVID-19, the Ray of Life units were sent usually with church mission teams traveling to developing parts of the world. As you know, when COVID happened, it changed the world of supply chains and everything. Our organization, pre-COVID, had produced about 4,000 of these lights and they're in 39 countries. During the pandemic, production stalled and remained dormant until a call from Siemens' longtime friend Dave Nonemacher. He heads up New Horizons Foundation USA, serving primarily Romania and Moldova. He'd visited Ukraine shortly after the war broke out. They have no power, period. You know, one of the things that I think we've landed on is light brings hope and hope keeps people alive. To be able to read to your kids, to cook a meal with some light, I mean, it's a really, really powerful metaphor. In Eastern Europe, Nonemacher worked with Joel Burkham, director of For God's Children International, delivering supplies to refugees crossing Ukraine's southwestern border into neighboring Moldova. Back in America, Nonemacher lay awake at night, wondering what he could do to help the people of Ukraine. With at least two trips planned this year, Burkham introduced him to Vlad, an FGCI staff member who travels 750 miles a week transporting Ukrainians from the Moldovan border into places like Chisinau, and Vadim, a pastor who was in Kyiv when the war started. We are withholding both men's last names for their safety. We talked about going back, and I was doing my morning swim, and the thought popped in my head, I wonder if Rustin is still making lights. Pretty quick, we had plane tickets to go back. Vadim arranged several forays into Ukraine, the two travelling alongside the Mariupol chaplain's battalion, volunteers who risk their lives daily to support the military, evacuate citizens and bring supplies and comfort to those in need. One, a Ukraine woman with a shock of red hair and a huge smile lighting up her face, gratefully accepts a ray of life solar unit. Vadim carefully plans each trip based on the number of solar units, provisions, cash and available vehicles. So we're going to have a van. The other question, you know, how much do I have? So he knows what he can buy and the areas in Ukraine that he knows people need supplies. The sponsors of the Ray of Life units complete the final assembly. Each solar unit costs $100 to build and ship. For an extra $25, a separate water filter is included with every kit. Sponsors include churches, service clubs like Rotary International and NGOs. It's always been a partnership. Our light is designed so that people actually kind of peel and stick and put it together. They sponsor the cost of the light and then we try to actually help them assemble the light and have some skin in the game. The hardest part is getting them from some location across the border to another country. Victoria Carson with the American Reformed Church in Orange City, Iowa, and Pastor Ryan Donahoe with the First Presbyterian Church in Petoskey, Michigan, are among those helping to assemble the lights. Donahoe said his church rallied to build as many lights as possible. Dave ended up sending me all the light kits there were for our youth to put together. And I said, hey, we still have all this money. How many water filters can you buy with this? And so every light kit that will be going over to Ukraine, they'll get both light power to charge their cell phones, but also a water filter. The final touch includes a blue and white adhesive Ukrainian flag sealed across the top of each kit and signed by the person who put it together. 
people are longing for ways to come together and longing for ways to see the connections. And when I say this light kit is going to go to an individual or family in Ukraine, you know, we had the kids sign their names on them. They know this came from a person. You put this together with your hands. And so for people in Ukraine, it's a way of saying, like, we know you exist. We are connected with you. Carson said her Iowa church embraced the idea of helping Ukraine. One of the families, they have uh, a Ukrainian student in their class. And so this little gal who's in grade school was so excited to be building for Ukraine that she had a connection and then she got to do something. So it was kind of tricky figuring out what we were all doing as a group. And yet it, it all came together. Both Seaman and Nonamaker say it's affirming to know that what is being done by Americans is helping people in Ukraine. John Prusha's legacy continues to have an impact and will for a long time. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor in Philippi, Barber County. It's that time of year when students return to school. But in Morgantown, it looks like students at West Virginia University have fewer options. That's after the university recommended cutting 32 of its 338 majors, including all of its world language programs. The cuts are part of an effort to close an estimated $45 million budget shortfall. WVPB's Chris Schultz has more. To save money, West Virginia University is looking to cut 32 majors and completely dissolve its world language department. But the language programs have been bringing in more than they spend, says Lisa Bartolomeo. My department also really contributes deeply to the service mission of the university. Bartolomeo is a professor and supervisor of the Russian Studies Program. She and others are questioning the review process and possible impact of the proposed cuts. We teach a lot of students, and I don't think that the provost office and the administration are fully aware of the ramifications of closing the language program at a university like this. With no language program, the university is also considering dropping language requirements for all majors. Bartolomeo says it's unthinkable a university of this size would not offer any language courses whatsoever. If we are allegedly equipping our students to go out into the world and to have successful careers, and yet we're not educating them in means of communication with people from other countries and other backgrounds, we are failing them as a university. West Virginia University is the state's land-grant university and its largest. In recent years, state government funding dropped, as did enrollment. Meanwhile, the university made investments like construction and taking over hospitals. The proposed cuts were announced just days before the start of the fall semester, as students returned to campus. Cortez Blount is a freshman from Washington, D.C. He's a business major and had his eye on a minor in languages. But now, since languages are getting cut, it's kind of like, got to keep my decisions limited. Blount says if the cuts go through, he may be looking elsewhere for his degree. I give it my sophomore year, and if things isn't changing, then transfer might be an option. The programs and classes on the chopping block would continue through at least May of next year. The university's final decision on cuts are expected in September. Students like sophomore Gabby Cotton are dismayed by the proposals, but she doesn't feel like there's much she can do about it. There's a lot of, like, advertisements for cultural diversity and stuff, but they're kind of going back on that now with that literally being cut out. I mean, I'm still going to go here. I mean, I'm a broke college student. I don't really have a lot of choices. Since their return, students have led campus protests against the cuts. Nineteen of the 25 units identified for formal review have submitted an intent to appeal with the university. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown, West Virginia. The cuts at WVU are happening as part of a larger restructuring process the university's been undergoing for several years. Before the cuts were announced, Schultz spoke with WVU Faculty Senate Chair Frankie Tack. Give me the back of the napkin of what it is that the Faculty Senate does. The Faculty Senate represents faculty and the shared governance at the university. And shared governance is a process in higher education whereby faculty have the opportunity to provide a voice on the academic side of the house, Um, a big focus on curriculum, faculty welfare, uh, policies and procedures related to things like promotion and tenure and evaluation, 
um, student evaluations of instruction. We have a big initiative on that and other other forms of evaluation. What can you tell me from your perspective about the WVU Transformation Project? The process started a few years ago, and it was initially a process that had a longer time focus at what's called the demographic cliff, when we know there's a big you know, change in, in demographics across the United States and, and the college-going age to traditional age population. So it was initially focused on preparing for that, and so looking at ways to, to you know, tighten things up, become more focused on, on what students are looking for in higher ed, et cetera. It was more of a, an incremental process. But things have become acute now, and uh, COVID accelerated a lot of that, and a variety of, you know, sort of perfect uh, storm type events coming together to the point that now we have to act, and we have to act in the short term. This phase is faster, deeper, broader, more visible, and ultimately is going to be more impacting. So, you know, we just no longer have time on our side. It really seems like this acceleration has focused pretty heavily on the academic aspects of the university. Do you have any concept of why that perception is so strong? You know, faculty salaries are a huge driver of the overall WVU budget. And so to make a an impact of the size that has to be made financially, that had to be a big part of the process. And so if you're going to reduce faculty, you have to do that in some cogent way or else you're really going to damage the institution. To me, this process is about really taking a hard look at all of our programs and seeing where we may be able to reduce in a way that, you know, has a minimal impact on students, but also maybe reconfigures what we do to be more focused on what's needed today. President V has repeatedly said, we're all in this together. This isn't any one person's problem. He has said it's not his problem, it's our problem, and that no area of the university is sacred. So we have been pushing, having heard that, for a deep review on all areas of the university. And so, and we're, we, we are getting that um, area by area. So it started on that side. Um, and frankly, that's our biggest opportunity for cuts. It just is. That's just the nature of a university. Uh, but, but we are pushing very hard that everything should be right-sized. This is the moment for us to analyze everything. I know that intellectually, this makes sense. Intellectually, it's necessary. Emotionally, how are you feeling about this process? Well, you know, it's awful. <laughs> it's, it's um, you know, anytime you talk about people losing jobs and people have already lost jobs and, and more people are going to lose jobs. And, and that's awful. Um, I mean, these are our colleagues. You know, they're friends and we live in a small college town. So they're also our neighbors. That is just is heart wrenching. You know, the piece that kind of goes with that, that's kind of secondary to the people is our programs. And, and you know, nobody, I don't think, works in in higher ed as, as a professor in a discipline they don't care about, have passion about, are invested in. And for many of us, you know, we've participated in building our programs. We're going to be in a grieving process. There's going to be a lot of loss. But I've kind of likened it to a forest fire, Chris, in that, you know, you have this raging forest fire and it goes through and, and everything is just kind of burnt to a crisp. And there may be a thing or two left standing. And I don't, you know, they're not going to burn everything by any means. And then it lays dormant for a little while, but then it starts to grow and bloom and like the, the fire and its remnants end up feeding the growth. And, and that's my hope. Something is going to emerge from this process and it's going to look very similar to what was here before, but it will be different. So I do wonder what you've been hearing from the other senators, from your constituency about not just the process, but what's going to come out on the other side. I think that's part of why we've been pushing and pushing for so much transparency from upper administration, because there's a lot of theories about how we got here and how we're going to move forward. We have been pushing for documentation on all the things people have been asking about. 
So from our public-private partnerships to our debt structure, our, our past budgets, our organizational structures, I mean, a ton of things. There's a feeling about wanting to hold somebody accountable. And then I believe the other part is, how can I have trust in the future? If I'm one of the ones left standing, how can I believe that we're well to move forward? We're strong financially, we're strong with our leadership, et cetera. So, um, I mean, I, I think part of how we're going about that is to get as much information in the hands of faculty as we can. We've never had to know about all these in- intricacies of the university. And and now, um, you know, I believe we have a right to know if you're going to cut faculty jobs, especially people who are tenure track and tenured. I mean, that's 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 certainly unprecedented at WVU and it's practically unprecedented nationwide. So I think we have we have a right to know how the rest of the place is being operated if we're going to lose our jobs to fill the gap. That was WVU Faculty Senate Chair Frankie Tack talking with reporter Chris Schultz. To read a longer version of the interview, visit our website at wvpublic.org. Across the state line, Berea College in eastern Kentucky is seeing a different kind of change. In November, the private liberal arts school hired its first woman president. Dr. Cheryl Nixon officially started in July. Stu Johnson visited the campus to speak with Nixon and to learn more. Cheryl Nixon has spent 30 years working in higher education. She came to Berea from Fort Lewis College in Colorado, replacing the retiring Lyle Ruloffs. The 56-year-old Indiana native began her tenure at Berea College with a group of students, right as the country was celebrating Independence Day. I was able to go to a cookout with them, and they had a dessert-making contest where they made desserts, and then we went off and saw fireworks together. Nixon said many were incoming students, so they could relate well as all newbies, creating a nice, natural feeling of all being in it together. A major facet of the college experience in Berea is the tuition-free policy. The six-year graduation rate is 62 percent, with each student required to work. Sixty percent of students at Berea come from Appalachia. That demographic is one of the demographics that tends to not complete college in four years because they often have to interrupt their education to work, but to work for money to pay the bills, right? Reflecting on being Berea's first female president, Nixon doesn't view her role as different or, as she puts it, incredibly unique. She says it goes back to an essential idea that anyone, no matter differences of gender or race, can achieve and attain a leadership position. Laquisha Wilson is a sophomore at Berea from Birmingham, Alabama. Although initially not wanting to follow in her brother's footsteps who attended the liberal arts school, Wilson realized it was the best choice for her. And she thinks Nixon's place in administration is significant. I definitely do think it's important to show that women can be involved in running a big college like this just as well as a man can. So I think it's really important, and I think it's a good direction to go in. Cheryl Nixon says she wants to meet with faculty and staff to get details of exciting projects, their priorities for the upcoming year, what's been successful in the past, and where's the room for improvement. Megan Morgan Hoffman is a biology professor at Berea, who served on the Presidential Selection Committee. Many of her experiences we thought were very relevant to Berea. Some of the other campuses where she's worked, some of the other work she's done, for instance, where the the institution she's just left has been doing a lot of work with um, racial reconciliation, um, which is quite relevant to Berea in our history. Morgan Hoffman has spent three decades at Berea College. She says much has changed, particularly as it relates to student makeup. One thing I've noticed in the 30 years I've been here is our student body has changed dramatically. Um, We are so much more racially, ethnically, culturally diverse than we were when I first started here. The biology teacher says about half the students at Berea identify as white, with the other half students of color. Morgan Hoffman says that's changed the classrooms, the atmosphere, and energy on campus. In probably most communities across the country where a higher education institution resides, there's talk about the town-gown relationship. Dr. Nixon says it's her role to get out and meet the town, welcome people onto campus, and figure out partnering opportunities. She wants to examine which projects the town needs that are a good match for an educational institution to provide and then figuring out the best way to partner on that. 
And I think you know every community has has things that they are hoping to accomplish, and we should be knowledgeable about that and raising our hand and saying that we're here to help you, like sign us up. Not even a mile down the road from Berea College is City Hall, and next to that, the office for the Berea Chamber of Commerce. Local businesswoman Shelley Wolf is president of the chamber. In recent years, Wolf says there's been more cohesion between the community and the college, and Berea grads often do stick around. I've met several people here that I didn't realize were Berea College graduates, but they've they have come here, went to college here, and then they've just stayed raising their families. Some have started businesses on their own. President Cheryl Nixon plans to continue to listen and take notes her first few months at Berea. And she said she's eager to tackle the future of the school, which was founded by abolitionist Reverend John Greg Fee in 1855. I'm Stu Johnson. On TV shows and movies, bad guys often use duct tape for kidnapping and restraint. There's some basis in reality. Real criminals often use duct tape, too. But now a group of West Virginia University researchers has found a way to analyze duct tape, producing evidence that can hold up in court. Tatiana Trejos is a professor in the WVU Department of Forensic and Investigative Sciences. WVPB News Director Eric Douglas spoke with her to learn more. What are some of the the types of evidence you're finding on duct tape in general? Duct tape is one of those materials that are not only very prevalent at crime scene shows, but in real crime scenes. <laughs> well, I was going to ask that too. Is that is it real? I mean, do they really use that? As... <laughs> yeah, so it's very like easy to find, right? You just go to a store and find it, and it has properties that are very convenient also for the criminals, right? To gag something, to hold it, to kidnap it, put it in the, in the mouth, uh, gagging the victim or holding, restraining the victim, so we unfortunately have this kind of evidence in many cases, like kidnapping, murders, even suicides, uh, also to produce improvised explosive devices. Uh, it's very common that they use duct tape to hold the different components as well as other type of tapes, like electrical tapes. Uh, when we have drug trafficking as well, it's very common that they package those kilos with duct tape around to maintain the water or other uh, environmental sources to get into the drug. Um, so many, many different scenarios in which we can go to a crime scene, a site, and find um, duct tape in many circumstances. Duct tape is made to be ripped apart. I mean, it's made to have strong binding properties, but at the same time, it's made to rip relatively easily. Most mm-hmm. times, there's some kind of mesh between the layers of, of that's plastic. Correct. Right? Yes, that, that's what makes duct tape very strong. So it has the, the adhesive that make it sticky um, and stay to the surface. And it has the backing, which is the top surface, usually silver, but there are many other colors. And then in between is a mesh, like you said, it's, it's like a fiber, a, a textile that has different fibers going in one direction and across. And the more fibers we have, the stronger that tape is. Um, So that also has to do with the properties. So, but what you've discovered or what you've been able to quantify is, is when two, when duct tape is ripped apart, the, the leading edges of, of the piece that was removed and the piece that's still on the roll, you can, you can connect those and, and you've proven that that can't be replicated. I mean, this is, this is DNA fingerprint kind of stuff. Yes, exactly. So what we have um, for many years, uh, physical fits, which is, is that alignment of two pieces that were once joined together, has hold a very high uh, probative value in the courtroom because it's very unlikely that two pieces will fit together just like a puzzle, like a puzzle piece, because when you rip it apart, whether it's cut or uh, torn by hand, they will be features that are distorted in one edge and the other, then they fit together. And the more those features and more individual, individualizing those features, then the more uh, your confidence in that those two pieces were once together. 
So when you have a very high quality physical fit, then what we have demonstrated is um, the assumption that our forensic examiners have had for years um, because forensic physical fits have been out there for many decades. Um, so you have um, a doctor, you have a, a chair that has read in a violent crime, and then you have the two pieces fit together, like it's self-explanatory. And very easy also to demonstrate in the court. We don't need very hard science to demonstrate to a jury and see by themselves, right, that the two pieces come together. This is still a uh, microscopic level. Though. It's two stages. Um, you need first to do like um, a macro level, and then you go down to the microscopic level to demonstrate those features. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so this has been done for many years, and the big assumption is that it's unlikely that two pieces will fit together if they didn't, were not once together. However, just like many years ago, uh, in fingerprint, that we had the assumption that no other fingerprint is going to be alike, right, from other individuals. But we have, to, we have come to a level of science in which no matter how the assumptions and how reasonable they may look like, we need to prove them with science. And that's where this project started. I work very closely with practitioners and laboratory managers to identify research that can help them to provide solution to their needs. And one of them was a need to demonstrate that that assumption um, can be proven scientifically. So demonstrate the scientific validity of those assumptions that we had made for many years and demonstrate how likely it is really that we find just by random, by chance, an association that for something that was not really uh, together at one point before separation. That was WVU professor Tatiana Trejo speaking with Eric Douglas. For more of the interview, visit our website at wvpublic.org. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Ona, Valerie June, John Blissard, June Carter Cash, and Little Sparrow. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.